I started working at Amazon in September 2020. So like, there's no good time to work at Amazon, but you know, definitely during a, a global pandemic was probably the worst time I could have picked. Welcome to the Harmony of Interest series, where we explore ideas that shape our world. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab, which focuses on content, on labor, political economy, art, and culture, and we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with Jake Burdett, who is a progressive activist and is the former Columbia Democratic Club president in Maryland. And we're going to discuss his time working in an Amazon warehouse, and we're also going to discuss all the work he's been doing in Maryland politics. So Jake, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Evan. So first question I always like to ask is, what was your path to becoming politically active? Yeah, good question. So um, I guess just for full context so that people know. So I'm right now, I'm 23 years old and I'm sitting in my house in Howard County that I've lived in uh, really my entire life. And uh, my, my path to politics is a bit younger, or I'm sorry, a bit different than a lot of other people, especially a lot of other younger people who are politically engaged. A lot of times when I meet other young people that are activists, like they got into it through their parents or like they got into it when they were like 12 years old or something like that. But interestingly enough, here in Howard County, I grew up in a very apolitical family, um, or at least I, I perceived them as apolitical because anytime they would like talk to me about a political concept, they didn't tie it directly to politics. So I didn't realize it was connected to politics. That's all to say, um, really most of my entire childhood, especially being in Howard County, uh, which is the third uh, wealthiest county in the country, according to median income. And my family's not like rich, but we're, we're definitely comfortable where I never had to worry about uh, lack of health care, lack of food. Um, we had good public schools. Um, you know, paying bills was never really an issue. So a lot of other people, that's how they get into politics is that they've dealt with struggle personally. You know, maybe they did have a family that was struggling um, economically. And then it's kind of a lot harder to like avoid politics and the problems in our society if you're experiencing them firsthand. But because I didn't experience any of those problems and it was never, politics was never introduced to me by my family or by my friends. It was something I was largely just ignorant to and any societal ills I almost looked at as like justified, like that's just how the world works. I didn't even really know the power that politics could have on our system. And it wasn't until my senior year of high school in 2016 um, again, had never followed politics, didn't understand anything, but, you know, how could you not, that was during the 2016, like presidential election with the crazy primary season and whether it was Trump on the Republican side or Bernie on the democratic side, I don't know how people couldn't somehow like get, you know, that grabbed their attention somehow. And that's basically what happened to me is I heard this Bernie Sanders guy, I didn't think much of him, but then not only stumbling on Bernie, but then stumbling, you know, it also probably had to do with just my maturity level becoming 18. I was becoming intelligent enough to understand the political stuff. But on top of that, I stumbled on progressive YouTube, which I did not know existed. People like secular talk. I don't know if you're a progressive YouTube guy, Evan, maybe you don't know any of these people, but like secular talk. And like Kyle Kalinske. And yes, those people. And like, just the way that they presented news of like actually having personality, being funny and sharing stories that don't get mainstream coverage and then not sharing it like in a typical reporter fashion of 
today at 2 p.m. there was a car accident because that stuff was just boring to me. It never resonated. But hearing somebody like Kyle Kalinske joking around, somebody I could relate to a little bit, see myself in and talking about these things like, hey, did you know every other country in, in Western Europe uh, has like healthcare as a human right for free? Most of these other co- uh, countries, you can go to college for free. You don't have to go in debt. And of course, I was 18 at the time applying to colleges. So like a lot of these things really blew my mind, like, you know, deconstructed the reality that I thought existed. And then specifically with Bernie and Kyle Kalinske's like emphasis on income and wealth inequality, just hearing that explained to me made everything click in what I was seeing around me in my county in Howard County, because as I said, it's, you know, very wealthy county according to median income, but we still have a ton of income inequality. There are still homeless kids that I was going to school with, um, you know, in the public school system and people that, you know, are missing meals because they don't have, their parents don't have the money. And these are people that are living like two miles away from million dollar plus homes that have everything. So, um, you know, again, before that I had been like shoved the pull yourself up by your bootstraps philosophy to a degree before then I didn't realize that was a political philosophy, but I had bought into it to a degree, but then hearing how the system actually works made me kind of feel like an asshole for like how I had, you know, thought the world worked before. And it just, it really radicalized me and thought like, you know, I am in this very privileged position with all these problems. Like, you know, maybe I can do something, you know, use my resources, get involved with activism and, you know, so from there, my senior year started to follow politics, really learn about progressive ideology. And it wasn't until I transferred to Salisbury University, my sophomore year of college in 2017, that I actually started to get involved with real activism through like the local Our Revolution chapter, college Democrats chapter there. And then from there, I just, you know, fell in love with it and have continued ever since. And you've been involved with yeah, Our Revolution, Progressive Maryland. Uh, also, uh, have you been involved with DSA? So we, we did try to start a DSA chapter in Salisbury, where I went to school, Salisbury University, on the Eastern Shore, which is a very rural, um, more conservative part of the state than the rest of uh, the state. So that was interesting. It didn't really get off the ground too much because we ended up just doing DSA type organizing in the college Democrats chapter that I was co-president of, um, but very much affiliated with DSA and like, you know, very supportive of, of the cause. So talking about Maryland, it is generally a blue state, though we have a Republican governor and there's, we can talk about that if you want, which is, is kind of crazy how uh, a lot of Democrats abandoned Ben Jealous uh, during the 2018 election, probably because of the Montgomery County uh, concern of their taxes being raised and things like that. But within a very blue state with the House of Representatives, two, two Democratic senators, on the Eastern Shore, you have a very reactionary representative named Andy Harris. And I knew you before this, and then I, I learned that um, you were in his office, or you're you were engaging with one of his staffers. And you were trying to live stream the interaction. And uh, could you just provide a little bit of a scene setter of what happened here? Yeah. So, you know, as you said, Andy Harris, he is the, we, Maryland has eight congressional uh, representatives. Andy Harris is the only one that's a Republican. He got elected in 2010 uh, on the, the wave of the Tea Party. And he's really kind of one of the leaders and 
one of the most extreme people in the Tea Party, which is saying a lot because that's kind of a requirement to be in the Tea Party is to be extreme far right. But Andy Harris is legitimately one of the worst of the worst. The only reason he's able to be so bad and continually stay in power is his congressional district was horribly gerrymandered in the 2010 redistricting. Hopefully that gets fixed this time around. We can actually take him down. But, you know, people might have seen Andy Harris in the news recently for trying to go into Congress with a gun and it got flagged in the uh, by the metal detector. So we got some bad press there. But that was recent. My my interaction with Harris and my, you know, kind of legal troubles with him happened in 2018, right before his 2018 reelection. And on top of being one of the most far right Congress people, he's one of he's ranked in the top five worst Congress people in the US on the issue of marijuana legalization specifically. And um, he has a long running vendetta with marijuana legalization groups because uh, when the marijuana legalization activists got it legalized in DC for recreational use, Andy Harris used his power to put an amendment to water it down to make it so that there has to be this arduous and complicated loophole where they technically can't sell marijuana even though it's legal for recreational use. So there's a loophole where you have to like buy a $30 pair of flip-flops that comes with a gift of $30 of weed. There's like a loophole. So they're not technically selling the marijuana that exists because of Andy Harris. So that's all to say he was a huge target of uh, marijuana legalization protesters. We decided to have a protest at his Salisbury office in October of 2018, right before his reelection. I was only 20 years old at the time and a student at Salisbury University. I did not even plan the protest. It was planned by a group called MDMJ, Maryland Marijuana Justice. I just attended. We were encouraged to live stream the protest at his uh, congressional office in Salisbury, which Andy Harris was not at, but his staff was at. We entered the, the hallway. You know, it was a big office building with like, so that like the floor didn't just have Andy Harris's office. It had other business offices too. And we didn't know exactly which one was his so there's probably like 40 of us all in the the hall live streaming they're trying to tell us stop live stream stop live streaming i'm thinking like this is a congressional office this is like a direct action you're a public servant like you can't really you shouldn't be able to tell us like stop like you shouldn't be able to demand that we stop live streaming a protest and you know so we keep live streaming he ends up the staffer invites like six to eight of us into the office I'm one of the six to eight. He asked us to stop recording. I kept recording um, unbeknownst to them and unbeknownst to me that Maryland was one of 12 states to have a two-party consent law where you need everybody's uh, permission to record. So had I done what I did in DC or 38 other states, it would have been completely legal. Um, nonetheless, um, Andy Harris and his office decided after this day to press uh, two felony charges against me for wiretapping. And I was facing a total of 10 years in jail. It was uh, an unprecedented use and very controversial use of the state wiretapping law. It had never been used by an elected official against a constituent protesting them in this way. So it potentially could have set a really bad precedent um, or potentially I could have won the case if I fought it because it was so controversial. But considering how rigged I know the criminal justice system is and that I was facing 10 years and two felony charges and I was only 20 years old at the time and seemingly had a decent future cut out for myself. My lawyer and I decided it was not worth the risk to try to fight the case in court and take that risk. Um, 
So I ended up accepting a probation before judgment plea deal. And um, um, so it was technically no conviction, but I'm on probation. It was starting March 22nd, 2019 for three years. So I'll get off March 22nd, 2022. Um, and it, it, you know, it, even though I was not convicted, it is still on my criminal record. Um, and it, I can't get it uh, expunged until three years after the probation. So like 2025 at the earliest. And really what Andy Harris was trying to do was make an example out of me, uh, try to ruin my, my future as a professional and as an activist um, and really intimidate anybody else from ever trying to protest against him. Um, and to a degree it's, it's worked. It, it definitely is hard, harder for me to um, get jobs and whatnot, but um, I don't regret what I did. Um, and I think Andy Harris is a, a monster for what he did to me or tried to do to me. And I hope somebody can take him out in 2022. Yeah, that is just a crazy story uh, to try to live stream a public servant. And they know that, you know, they are on record in front of all these people. And then the live stream just one other aspect of that in a public funded office. Um, it, it is just, it's, it's terrible. And um, obviously, you talk about like the commercialization of our data and how it's constantly being taken, yet there is these protections that can be used, um, uh, you know, for our public servants. And, and, and they have cameras in their office recording me the whole time. They actually went to like, the you know, I, I, I was curious of like, because I deleted the live stream within 24 hours. So I was like, what even evidence do they have that I actually took this live stream? So like I emailed the state prosecutor, which was another thing that it was a state prosecutor that went after me and not the county state's attorney, which is abnormal. Um, and, you know, I, so I asked the state prosecutor, I'm like, can I see the evidence being used against me? And they sent me, uh, Annie Harris's office had went like, I don't know if it was with the warrant or what, but they requested from like the top Facebook executives to get access to all of my personal Facebook messengers. And they sent me like a 300 page document of all my personal messages that the Facebook executives had signed off to like give to Annie Harris's office. So like, you know, when you talk about the personal data, that's a good point. And then one, one other point I want to make about how controversial his prosecution was seen, which you could look this up in the Washington Post. It was national news, but, um, because it, he got so much bad press for it. Uh, there's a state senator and state delegate, uh, Delegate David Moon, um, and they in, uh, they introduced uh, a bill this past session in Maryland to change the Maryland state wiretapping laws from maximum of five years in jail to only 90 days in jail and from a felony to a misdemeanor. Um, the bill unfortunately did not pass, but they asked me to testify and like a big reason that they're introducing that bill is because they saw through my example how badly it can be abused and then also like you know the the wiretapping law was already controversial you can't record somebody without them having permission well what if you're trying to record somebody in the act of a crime or doing something bad they would never do on camera so this happens a lot of times with abuse victims who who secretly record their abuser abusing them and then they try to submit that in court as evidence and then they're actually the ones that get uh, charged with a criminal thing. So it's also a domestic abuse bill as well, but uh, hopefully that can actually get passed next year. Wow, and just one more follow-up question. 
So the attorney general, uh, Brian Frosch, uh, it was his office that was. No. So it was, there's the attorney general and then there's the uh, county state's attorney, which usually handles local cases. And then there's the state prosecutor, which is another office. The state prosecutor that went after me was a guy named Emmett Davitt, who's now retired. Um, he was appointed by Martin O'Malley, who did a lot to contribute to mass incarceration in the state of Maryland. And the reason I even knew about the state prosecutor thing is because the ACLU and Real News Network had reached out to me about it because they had been following this Emmett Davitt guy for years because the role of the state prosecutor, which I didn't realize until this case, state prosecutors specifically supposed to be like a watchdog on people of power. It's supposed to go after when elected officials and people in positions of authority are abusing their power. Um, so in other words, it's supposed to be going after guys like Andy Harris, not protecting guys like Andy Harris. Um, but the state prosecutor, Emmett Davitt, had a long history of politically motivated prosecutions going after uh, regular people like myself trying to hold power accountable or trying to blow the whistle about certain things. And I would encourage you, Evan, and everybody listening, the Real News Network just did, uh, just released a documentary called The Friendliest Town um, about a scandal in Pocomoke City, a small rural eastern shore town right by me in Salisbury, actually, where they have a good old boy policing system. And the first black police chief, Kelvin Sewell, um, was facing racist discrimination from the other uh, police. So he blew the whistle and filed a lawsuit for $400,000 and won the lawsuit uh, with, with other black sheriffs who also filed the complaint. And then the state prosecutor as retribution to that black sheriff who blew the whistle, uh, picked up like a six year old uh, traffic violation charge and pressed it against uh, the, the whistleblowing cop. Um, and he just got charged with it while I was still a student at Salisbury University. And it was clearly politically motivated. So yeah, they made a, a documentary about that that just got released, I think maybe with HBO and it's winning some awards. So that's all to say that this Emmett Davitt, I was not that state prosecutor's first victim and I'm happy to see that guy gone. Yeah. And just one other follow-up question because the medical examiner in the George Floyd case was the chief medical examiner in the state of Maryland. And they're starting to reopen a lot of cases on questionable police shootings on victims and whether the chief medical examiner um, fabricated evidence. And I'm, I'm just wondering if this state prosecutor was in, uh, had any connection with that guy. Um, yeah, I, I would have to do more research. I don't, I don't quite know. It, it's probably more of a chance of just like the government's filled with a lot of really bad people and those guys <laughs> happen to be two of them. But it's, it's also to show the importance of like the state level behind the scenes positions that nobody really pays attention to. Like they can be really damaging first with what they do early on in their career, but then through that they get promoted to these other positions um, and we see the damage that they've been able to do, so. Yeah, thanks for that. That's just a, a crazy, crazy story. And uh, yeah, more people should learn about it and uh, remove reactionaries from our government uh, that shouldn't be in positions of power like Andy Harris. Yep. So turning to Amazon, uh, what was your experience working at Amazon? Uh, where were you working? And uh, uh, let's begin with that. 
Yeah. So um, I worked, I started working at Amazon in September, 2020. So like, there's no good time to work at Amazon, but you know, definitely during a, a global pandemic was probably the worst time I could have picked, or actually it was August, 2020 I started. And um, just the, the context of what, and, and I, I worked at a, a warehouse in Baltimore called MTN five um, in like the Dundalk Baltimore kind of city line there. Um, and just the context of why I was there in the first place, you know, I wasn't, you know, I graduated college in May, 2020, I wasn't dying to graduate and then work at an Amazon warehouse. But the reason I, I did that is because of what we just talked about with Andy Harris going after me, even though I was not convicted, I'm still on probation, it still shows up on my, uh, on my criminal record. And therefore, it also shows up on background checks at jobs. So because of that, like I can't even work at like DoorDash and, and Grubhub. I get turned down due to my quote unquote criminal history. Um, so that's all to say, even though I have a college degree and, you know, did quite well in school and, you know, have a, a decent resume just because of that scarlet letter, um, you know, on my criminal record, it makes it very hard for me to find gainful employment. And Amazon was one of the few places that does, you know, they're an equal opportunity employer so they do hire people uh, with charges, depending on what they are. And mine wasn't anything violent. I didn't steal anything. So um, I was just basically in a desperate position with not a lot of options. And at the time, I was just looking at it as a temporary job. I didn't need anything full time. So I picked that up thinking, you know, hey, $15 an hour, how bad could it actually be? Um, so I started working there. And, you know, I can speak to the general conditions. It is really backbreaking labor. I worked at a sort center, not a fulfillment center. So I can't speak universally to what everyone's Amazon experience is like, but my experience. Could you talk about the difference between those two? Yeah. Um, to, to the extent that I, I think the, the fulfillment center, I believe is the people who like take, you know, if you're getting a piano or something, they're the ones who take the object and actually put it in the box and like tape the box. And then it gets sent to someone. Whereas a sort center, we're, we're not dealing with objects. We're only dealing with boxes, things that have already been packaged. And then we like sort, you know, comes off a conveyor belt. You have to look at the label, see, you know, what zip code or what area it's supposed to go to. And then that corresponds with the pallet that you bring uh, the box to. So it's, it's very, you know, it's nothing like, uh, you know, it's not a huge amount of mental labor. Um, but some of those boxes are extremely freaking heavy. And they want us to stack those pallets like, 80 inches high um you know you like tall basically taller than me i'm not the tallest guy i'm like five foot six five foot seven but still um they want so like sometimes you have to lift an extremely heavy package like kind of above your head and that's just not good for you you know it's not good for your bat they, they tell you like you know lifting tips of how you're supposed to do it properly but it's like no matter what if you're repeatedly lifting very heavy things many times over and over and over again it's gonna uh, you know, how take a toll on your body. And the scary thing is for me is I would finish shifts sometimes. Like, don't get me wrong. I appreciated the money as somebody who like worked at Domino's in high school for like eight twenty five an hour. Like it, it was nice. I'm getting almost double the pay, but I would finish shifts and seriously question whether it was worth the long-term toll that it would take on my body. And keep in mind, I, I was like a 22 or 23 year old, like, you know, not the strongest guy in the world, but I'm not overweight. I'm not really out of shape. And then I'd see these like, you know, 
65 year old little women who like should you know really should be retired right now and they're just doing this backbreaking labor and I'm just like this is just not this is just not right but you know everybody's in the same position I was in for probably for a little bit of a different reason but nobody wanted to be there we were there because we don't really have much opportunity there um and we have nowhere else to go so that is what I can say for the general work conditions. Um, the thing I really want to touch on that I saw the most was the a very alarming COVID conditions there. Um, but I guess real quick, one other thing that was messed up like about the general conditions is they have, what I liked about it is it was short shifts because it was a, a part-time factory. So the shifts are only like four hours, um, but then you can like double up and do doubles. And, and I did that a lot, but like the shifts, they're four hours, but they had the possibility to be what they call flexed up, meaning like the shift will get extended to five hours or to four and a half hours or four hours and 45 minutes. They can't extend it longer than an hour basically, but they can, but a lot of people, you know, we don't, they don't have a lot of money. They don't have their own transportation to and from work. So like they rely on like their friend or their mom to like come pick them up. So like, and that, that flex up thing, they don't really announce whether your shift is going to be flexed up until like, there's only an hour or two left in the shift. So like that makes it very difficult for people to coordinate rides, like getting to and from work um, because it expects whoever your ride is to just have a very flexible schedule. And there's no public transit nearby. There's like, there is one little like bus station thing, or at least it looks like a bus station. I never actually saw a bus go there. People would smoke there, but like, I don't think the, I don't think it the circulation super wide because remember this is Baltimore City so like people are driving from Prince George's County to work there people are driving I drove from Howard County to work there like you know it's not necessarily a safe assumption that everybody working at the Baltimore warehouse lives at the Baltimore warehouse. How, um, how many employees uh, could did you estimate? Good question good question Evan and this is where we get into the COVID aspect so um, you know again, it was like four hour shifts. So there's like six or seven shifts a day. So like, you know, I only work particular shifts. So I can't say, you know, whether the other shifts had all new people or some of the same people. So there's probably overlap between some shifts. But what I can say is in a particular shift um, that I worked on a four hour shift, we got email. I, I always, I walked in my first time and I really felt like uh, like cattle in a herd kind of like we're all just like grazing there's like hundreds of us in this warehouse that's just me eyeballing I wasn't sure but I could tell there's well over 100 people isn't there some like COVID regulations about like you can't have more than like 50 people in a gathering space or something like that I didn't know I was questioning it but I didn't I later Amazon sent out an email uh, confirming like or, or basically trying to be transparent about their COVID statistics and tell us what measures they're taking. They send out a thing saying, good news, we're uh, changing the maximum amount of people that we can have on a shift from 230 people to 210 people. Um, so that doesn't mean every shift had that many people, but it shows during the middle of a global pandemic, they're willing to uh, herd 200 plus people in this warehouse. Granted, it is a big warehouse, but still, it's not like every person is like equally spaced six feet apart. So it's all, it's like, no, there's workstations in the warehouse. So people get clustered together in certain spaces. And when we're picking up the packages off the conveyor belt and putting it on the pallet, it's these 
short little narrow corridors and you have to walk past people like it's, it's basically impossible to socially distance and meet their productivity quotas and do the job effectively you have to choose one or the other um, and you're either going to get yelled at for not working hard enough or you're going to get yelled at for not socially distancing so it's kind of a lose-lose that's their trick they make it they like to make it seem like it's the obligation of the individual workers to stay safe and not the company to set up conditions that keep us safe um and you know so with that set up in mind if there's hundreds of us working at one time you might not be surprised evan to learn that um so they did a sneaky thing they we have an app at amazon that you can clock in and clock out from and then they can also like communicate send you little messages and again in an attempt to pretend to be transparent they would send us notifications every time uh, one of our coworkers got diagnosed with COVID, but it would tell you, it would say, hey, um, we just want to let you know, individuals at the MTN5 factory have tested positive for COVID. So it'll say individuals. It won't tell you how many people tested positive, but you know, at least one person tested positive. Could it be one? Could it be five? I don't know. And then it'll tell you they were last working from March 7th to March 18th. So they'll give you like this huge time window. Um, so you can't really like determine whether you even worked a shift with that person and if you should be worried or not. But I'm, I'm telling you, Evan, we would get, especially towards the end when I, when I stopped working there, we were getting uh, these notifications about coworkers getting COVID more than once a week, more than once a week, people were getting uh, diagnosed with COVID. And in fact, um, one of uh, like basically my last week there, uh, a coworker of mine told me, Hey, you know, Cindy over in small sorts, she died. She died of COVID. Like she got COVID at the, at the warehouse and she died. People are talking about like, they need to shut this warehouse down. And like that never happened. It didn't get shut down, but just to show like how bad it was at my warehouse. And, you know, the last kind of bombshell detail that I can think off the top of my head is, um, they do take your temperature um, to before you enter the building to make sure you're safe or not sick. Um, but I mean, if, Evan, if you were like the manager of a warehouse or something during COVID, what would you what what temperature would you set as like the cutoff? Like if you te if your temperature is this or higher, I would not let you in. What would you choose? I mean, slightly over, what is it? 98.7, I guess, you know, like, and if you're feeling maybe like 99.7 or something. Yeah. Evan, their cutoff, and they had this written on a sign, their cutoff was 100.4 degrees. If you had 100.3 degree temperature in the middle of COVID, they would let you in with hundreds of people to work. Uh, and, you know, I, this is, this is where the conspiracy theory get, gets in, but they, the, uh, the, the temperature thing that they use was like an infrared camera. It's not like a temperature stick that they put in your mouth. And like people say that those are like calibrated a, like a little bit lower than, than the average. So even already it was like preset to be a little bit lower than their actual temperature. And then they still set an incredibly high limit of 100.4 degrees. Um, so, I mean, that, that should explain that's why these COVID cases are happening. And I'm sure that's probably a uniform policy at all their warehouses. So obviously the organizing drive in Bessemer, Alabama raised 
awareness about some of the work conditions in these warehouses and the fact that it's very difficult for workers to you know communicate because they're they're on an algorithmic management system where every second is being timed so could you talk a little bit about what that algorithmic management system is because it seems in some ways that this is going to be the future that we need to demand our own rights to fight against because from Uber to DoorDash to Amazon warehouses, it, it's going into hospitals and everything else to really have a complete surveillance of workers that are then managed uh, by second through this algorithmic management. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. This is where I maybe am not the best uh, Amazon employee advocate because basically I mentioned earlier that I was at a part-time factory and there are other full-time factories. So I heard horror stories from other people. There's a lot of people that I worked with who had like worked at three or four different Amazon warehouses. And like the one where I was at was considered like the best it can get because it was part-time and the part-time factories are held to much lower quota standards than the full-time factory. So yes, they do still have those algorithm things, you know, certain scan rate scans per second. They do hold you to that to a degree, but it's not nearly as strict at the full-time factories. But that being said, um, they are still basically monitoring like your every move and there's cameras everywhere. And like they have um, really what it, it, there's so many managers. So it's like even hard to kind of find a private place to talk sometimes. Um, and the, the fact the warehouse is so big that, um, you know, it can be hard to like talk and then you're like you, you two might just be the only two in that big wide open space. So it's like obvious that you two are talking. Um, so it can be hard to to find privacy, but it's it's probably much harder at the other ones. But what I find difficult is just like, you know, I'm no expert on unions, but we're, you know, starting this job, that was something on my mind because I knew an Amazon warehouse had never been organized. So I was like, maybe I could try that. I ended up deciding not to do it just because I feel like to to take something like that on, one, you have to commit, like, this is going to be my long-term job. I'm going to have this for a while. And I didn't know how long. And then also like, you got to be very social, like, because I think to, to form a union, you have to get a certain percentage of the employees to like sign a card saying we want a union vote to happen. Um, and when there are like hundreds or potentially even thousands of people at your warehouse, that means you have to talk to a lot of people. Um, and there are like different, uh, you know, there's different communities. There's like, you know, the, like the Spanish speaking community who like kind of keep to themselves a lot. There's you know, the, uh, you know, Asian American community that, uh, you know, kept themselves a lot. Um, there's more interspersed between like the black and white populations, but there are these different like little communities and really what I think people need to like build up a team to organize and like, you know, have people reach out to the different constituencies, bring them together, make them realize like, you know, you may speak this language or be this race, but like, we're all working people working at the same people, uh, working at the same warehouse. Um, and Jane so. McAlevey, uh, in her postmortem of the failure of the Amazon drive in Bessemer, talks about the need to go essentially do house visits because you can't do a lot of, you can't organize at the site. Um, no. And you have to actually go to the houses and you have to figure out community engagement strategies. And that takes a lot of resources, a lot of time. And being a part-time warehouse, you know, that also means that a lot of these folks are, are just there to supplement maybe another job or another income. Yeah. And, and a further aspect of this is that 
Amazon has created uh, excess capacity in their warehouses so that they can shut down one warehouse and then scale up another if workers organize and demand too many rights. So there is also that aspect going on as well. So I, I wasn't aware that you were in a part-time facility. I'm sure there's facilities not too far away that are full-time. And if they start agitating too much, they can move more business to the part-time and actually just fire everyone who's even thinking about unionizing. And I appreciate you telling me that because I, I did not realize that that was strategic on their part, that they purposely do that to like leverage the warehouses against each other. But it makes complete sense because like at my warehouse, you know, in like the little, it's like a warehouse yard kind of in Dundalk. And there's like two or three, there's like two other Amazon warehouses that are right next to us. And I always wondered like, why, why, why did they do that? But that that's probably why they did it. So that if one, if workers at one Amazon warehouse get uppity, you know, they can uh, just can everybody. Um, and that's, that's one aspect. Obviously they, they have the ability to surge um, and, and things like that. But uh, I think another benefit of that infrastructure is to um, be able to continue making money on the exploitation of labor and uh, reducing labor costs. And, and touching on, on something else you said, like one thing that I found so interesting was like, you know, I, I was really desperate for a job because of the criminal record thing. I was getting turned down. And then I heard that Amazon doesn't do background checks or like that they'll hire people with records. But then I went and I applied, you don't even have to submit a resume and you don't have to do an interview. So like they will hire literally anybody and and i realized like what they what their strategy is is like throw everything into the meat grinder and see what survives like probably half of their workers don't even like last longer than two weeks but it's like they don't even care it's like just bring in more and more and more people eventually some people will stay um and the people who stay for a few years just you know use use all their energy grind them up and then when they have no back left you know you don't have to worry about their health care or pension or anything like that anymore and there were no additional benefits outside the 15 dollars an hour presumably uh there there is there? benefits yeah. but you had to, like you had to work there for a certain period of time and like transfer and like do a drug test and like some of the things don't kick in until like you've worked there for three years. So it's like, you know, I already, I'm, on, I'm 23. I'm on my parents' healthcare. So like, you know, I wasn't they, like, literally I have so little trust for Amazon that I don't even trust like paying into 401k for them. Like, I think I might just never see the money again. So I didn't uh, do any of the, um, of the, I couldn't speak to if they're actually good. They're probably not that great. Um, yeah, and if healthcare and those things kick in three years, and the average employee's tenure is you know six months, um, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense either. But exactly. But I will say on the on the Bessemer thing, like I was trying to, because uh, that's that's the other thing about like what the the time it takes to build these unions um, is like you can't just go up to somebody and say, hey, you want to join a union? Like you have to build an actual relationship and like build that trust with them. So it seems like genuine because this is big commitments you know people are potentially risking their jobs um to do this so yeah i just uh you know i was trying to like have those preliminary conversations knowing i didn't have the time to actually build a union but still just wanted to to test the waters and like at first when i went there i saw how many people worked there and i was like i'll never be able to like unionize but then the longer i worked there it's like almost on a daily basis i'm just walk by 
two random coworkers and they're like complaining about how shitty things are. And like, people are aware that this place is owned by the richest guy in the world. And like, you know, even the beyond the COVID condition, just like the scanners and the technology we use like was shit. And it's like, you guys have the money to do this, but you know, I, I would always try to bring up the unions to people and, you know, especially when the Bessemer thing was happening. And like, honestly, it seemed like a lot of people, a lot of people want change, but they don't know how to get it like that, you know, and, and unions have kind of been like, they don't teach you about unions much. So it's like hard to get introduced to it. Um, and like a lot of people didn't seem aware that the Bessemer thing was really going on. So, you know, I, I would have wished that that had maybe served with like more inspiration, but I saw like another local factory BWI five here in Maryland, like they did a protest. So clearly the Bessemer thing, even though it wasn't successful, it, is, it did start a movement, I think, and we are going to see other warehouses start to try to unionize. And if they did it in Alabama, like you can do it in Maryland. So uh, as we kind of close out this uh, spotlight on your work at Amazon, uh, final thoughts on how the public can support Amazon workers. Um, yeah, so there was a big thing going around. People were like saying boycott Amazon. I don't think that's actually what Amazon workers are advocating for really um, probably the the best way that that you could help is we need people again I said there's a lot of people at that warehouse who want things to get better but just don't really know how to do it if if you're watching this and you're an experienced like labor organizer like consider starting to work at an Amazon warehouse and salting the factory you know salting is when they like pre you know start to like prep the workers tell them about unions like do do that if you have the privilege and the ability to be able to do that um you know like the, the, these people you know they got they got to get organized and the, if, if there's any corporation that needs it it is amazon right now so i wish i had more helpful i, I guess i could plug the groups that i do know are working on this stuff um and that is there's a group national group called amazonians united um, that was actually what first got me interested in organizing um, at an Amazon warehouse. And like they, they started in Chicago at a Chicago warehouse and they actually won, um, you know, like paid time off during COVID uh, for the entire uh, country just through their one warehouse. Um, I, you know, they, they didn't unionize, but I think they're definitely working on that stuff. But, um, you know, if you Google Amazonians United, you'll see articles about them. So um, if you can donate to that group, um, that would be a good way. But yeah, really, it just it starts in the workplace, unfortunately. Um, so if you know any Amazon workers um, and they don't know anything about unionizing, maybe you can try to help them. But yeah, we need a lot of people to do this. And just one other point to make, because I, I do uh, taken a lot of um, lessons from Jane McAlevey. And one of the things she talks about is that transportation and logistics is a strategic industry like education and healthcare. And if those three industries could ever work together to do a work stoppage, you could shut down this, this country and really leverage the worker power to be able to influence the decisions of, of the bosses and of the owners of capital and finance capital. So yeah. something to take a look at. This is obviously going to be a long-term project. You know, you go back to the Old Testament and uh, one of the first labor strikes is uh, the Israelites uh, leaving Egypt as slaves. So um, this will be with us, you know, 
in the future, and uh, it's it's a long term long term struggle. So I really appreciate you sharing that. One one last point I'll make on that is um, something maybe a tool that could be leveraged though you have to be very careful with this is um, they have like a tier system of management. And I found out like the lowest tier of manager gets like after taxes, only 70 cents more an hour than your base level employee. So that's just to say normally, like that's what Amazon depends on is to have vigilant managers that will crack down on, on unionization practices. But even the managers themselves are so like oppressed that even some of them seem open to like, you know, some of them will just openly say fuck Amazon and like, you know, I, I spoke to the Real News Network about some of these conditions. I don't know if the story will actually come out or not, but I had like uh, a manager of mine also come speak like on the interview because, you know, again, the managers are being treated like shit too. So that could be an opportunity as if we could turn the management class against the actual management class at Amazon. Yeah. And just another side note that I followed the investment was that when they were trying to organize the workers, there is that like mid-tier manager that they didn't know whether they would actually be counted as an employee or that they would actually be seen as management because it takes like a certain level of authority to actually be technically a manager within the National Labor Relations Board. So all these different um, strategies by Amazon is, is why they're so successful at preventing any type of organized uh, labor. Yep. So turning our focus back to larger questions of Maryland organizing and politics, as mentioned, you've been involved with Democratic Party politics, Progressive Maryland, Our Revolution, DSA. So could you talk a bit about your vision? To, there, there's Our Revolution, yeah. beautiful state of Maryland. And uh, where, where are you putting some of your efforts and energies to educate, organize, and mobilize the left in Maryland? Yeah, that's a good question. So. Uh, I can, I think my evolution in politics is similar, you know, at least after I got involved with politics to a lot of people. And I'm starting to learn from like some rookie mistakes. And that is like, you know, I, as I said earlier, I got into it through the Bernie Sanders movement, AKA national politics and like learning about Medicare for all, learning about Green New Deal, learning about, you know, ending the interventions that were in overseas, um, all of that good stuff. Um, and then, you know, I felt like, oh, I know all this. I'm a genius. I can run for Congress or something. But, um, you know, then you start to realize like you actually have very little effect on like national politics and like congressional races are so huge. Like, you know, even if you door knock every single day, you alone, it's, it's going to be tough to make an impact. Or even if you have your own organization, it might be tough to like single handedly flip that. And, you know, so kind of my next step after that um, I interned in the state legislature um, in 2019 for State Senator Paul Pinsky, which you might even live in his district. Uh, I have an interview with him uh, a few weeks ago. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, good dude. And through that, I learned about the whole new world of state politics and the Maryland General Assembly. And, you know, I'd been involved with like state Democratic Party politics. And I just, I just realized like, from that, you know, I, I organized around issues like Fight for 15. Um, this past session, there was a bill called the Maryland State Essential Workers Protection Act, which would give uh, uh, essential workers like warehouse workers uh, hazard pay, extra $3 an hour, because Amazon did do that in March and April and May of 2020, and then stopped paying hazard pay, even though the pandemic was only worse. So 
I've advocated on these couple of bills and just through that, I've learned like, wow, you can really have like a much bigger impact on the state process and these state elections than you can on this national stuff. Not say that the national stuff isn't important, you know, shout out to Michaela Wilkes running for Congress, shout out to my Medicare for all activists with the Maryland Progressive Healthcare Coalition. It's all extremely important, but I liked seeing that I could actually look at the effects of the things that I was working on. And so I, I got into like state politics for a while. And then once I graduated in May, 2020, um, I left the Eastern Shore at Salisbury University, came back here to Howard County and then got involved in local, local county politics. And I realized like what I just said about state politics of like, wow, you can have a much bigger impact here. It's even more so true with local county politics. So I graduated in May, 2020, became a campaign manager for a board of education candidate, um, learned a lot about county politics through there. And then from there became president of the Columbia Democratic Club and got involved in like a lot of different local fights. Our county was one of three counties in the state of Maryland to have um, a contract with ICE um, to like detain uh, undocumented people. And our county made like one or $2 million off of it. Um, so I was very involved with the fight to get our Democratic County executive to end that um, recent fight on, uh, you know, getting police body cameras in our county, which uh, I feel like every other police station has that except us, but we got that. Um, so that's my, my focus now really is the county, Howard County politics, and really um, specifically getting involved with the county politics, I realize, and you might be able to relate to this in Prince George's County, I realize that there's a huge disconnect between people in national progressive movements and people doing the actual local organizing work, um, where you could have somebody ex uh, understand the issues extremely well nationally, but the local issues, they're not debating Medicare for all in your county level. They're not, well, in Prince George's, they just passed a resolution for that. But in most counties, they're not debating Medicare for all. They're not debating Green New Deal. They're debating these other things. And at least in Howard, in a suburban county like Howard County, about 80 to 90% of the stuff that they vote, in, vote on is zoning and land use issues, um, aka development related stuff, which in all my years of state and federal politics, I hadn't heard anything ever talked about development. So like, this was all a brand new issue for me. And the way that developers go about it you know, just like private health insurance and the uh, military industrial complex, they all have these like talking points to make what they're doing sound reasonable. So do the developers and to gaslight any critics and the developer talking points is basically um, because, you know, our politicians are bought off at the local level, just like the state and national level, but it's not health insurance executives donating to county politicians. It's not the military industrial complex donating to politicians. It is developers donating to our politicians at the local level, at least in Prince George's County, Montgomery County and Howard County. And so that's who's bidding they're doing and the talking points that the developers use to like gaslight anybody that's critical of them buying off local politicians is they try to make development synonymous with affordable housing. So that way, if you're critical of developers, then they make it seem like you're actually criticizing affordable housing and you don't want low-income people in your community and you're in NIMBY and you don't want uh, people of color in your community when the truth is the developers try to uh, skirt building affordable housing every chance they get because they'd much rather build like a single family home and make a lot more money 
and they're the ones buying our politicians off. They're the ones crowding our schools. And, you know, I fell for a lot of these talking points at first, even though I was deeply came out of the progressive movement, I didn't know any better. So these last year or so, when I've started to like educate myself more on this issue, you know, we just started, uh, I was the Columbia democratic club president. Um, we just had our, our elections yesterday. I did not run for reelection because we decided to instead start a new group called the progressive Democrats of Howard County. And that's really going to be a big focus of this new group is to educate the public on these land use and development issues. Um, because I really do think that is the biggest issue that affects people in Howard County. And that's the reason, even though we are the third wealthiest County in the country, I think Prince George's County is the wealthiest black uh, like majority population um, county in the country. But even though we have all these resources, the reason we can't pay for anything is because we're giving millions and millions of dollars in subsidies to these development uh, corporations that are buying our politicians off. And that's why our schools are overcrowded. That's why we don't have enough money to provide universal free daycare because it's being given to these developers that are like flooding our infrastructure. Um, so that that is really, that's my newest thing that I've like gotten really into and because progressives are so ignorant on that issue that's what I'm most passionate about is really educating these people because again the main counties in Maryland the biggest ones Howard County Prince George's Montgomery County Anne Arundel those are also all the counties with the biggest developer influence so it's like you know not just Howard County progressives need to get better on this stuff but even in those other counties so I want to hopefully we can spread the word in other counties too. And then we're also, it's not just zoning and land use. We're also working on um, getting SROs or school police out of our schools in Howard County. Um, but yeah, so that's a uh, kind of a summary of, you know, what, what my focus right now is. And obviously like the whole local county municipal is being ran on property taxes. They may have a very small sales tax, but most of it, it comes down of like who owns the property, who's paying the taxes and then you're funding schools and everything else yep. through what's left of that. And uh, it, it is one of the most important ways to kind of um, understand, you know, how you educate uh, the people in your, your county and things like that is to look at the, that organizing principle and, and to see where are taxes going to come uh, from these developers that are coming in. And if you just say, we're going to give you zero percent financing and we're not going to charge you property taxes then that means other people are going to have to burden be carry the burden of um funding schools and things like that yeah and on on the topic of and i know i know it's been a long interview i can talk a lot sorry but uh on, on the topic of the local uh municipal elected leaders see this is when i get jealous of people in prince george's county and other counties because howard county is one of two counties in the state of maryland the other one's baltimore county where we don't have any incorporated municipalities, meaning no local city elected officials, no mayors. We have a, a county of over 300,000 people. That's the third wealthiest in the country. And yet for representation, we have five council members and a county executive. So it's an incredible amount of power concentrated in very few hands. And just to get, you know, like the, the level of developer corruption that, that we have is like literally, uh, you know, in December, uh, I think it was December, our county executive received $12,000 in donations from people tied to a developer the same month that he was voting on their development project. And 
I say we have no local elected uh, municipalities. The closest thing we have is Columbia, Maryland is in Howard County. It's the second uh, biggest city in the state that has over 100,000 people. Baltimore is the biggest. Columbia is the second biggest. A lot of people don't know that. Um, but the closest thing they have, you know, it's technically also a homeowners association and they elect, they have an election. There's nine different villages and they have elections in the homeowners association. It's called the Columbia association. And, you know, they're elections, but they're not public elections. So therefore they're not subject to the same like financial regulations and trend. You don't have to file like finance reports to disclose who your donors were. And, uh, they, they do elections every year for Columbia Association. They just had the elections um, April 24th in Howard County. And this mysterious group called the Rouse Project popped up um, that basically uh, was sending mailers out, you know, had uh, PR consultants, had, um, you know, uh, advocacy consultants, basically spending like well over $50,000 on this uh, HOA election. And Jesus. it's suspected that it was all developer money, but they're able to get away with it because it's not a real election. So they don't have to report where their funding came from. And, you know, luckily, even though they spent all that money, they only won like two out of the six seats that were up for re-election. But I'm really scared that that model is going to be exported. The main developer in Howard County is called Howard Hughes Corporation. It's based in Texas. And I think that's going to be Howard Hughes, presumably like his yeah. foundation. Yeah. Yes. The how it was private foundation. They're called the Rouse project that, that dark money developer group because Columbia was originally planned by a city planner named uh, Jim Rouse. Who's actually actor Edward Norton's grandfather, interestingly enough, but he designed the city in a very like uh, progressive forward thinking ways in like the sixties, like to like integrate different races and economic levels but then Jim Rouse died and his company got purchased by Howard Hughes Corporation and people try to pretend like Howard Hughes Corporation still has the same benevolent values as Jim Rouse, which it just completely doesn't. It wants to maximize profit because it's a uh, it's corporate. So it was Howard Hughes that was funding this Rouse project group, but they're using really bastardizing the name of Jim Rouse and trying to make it seem like, no, we're not trying to get developer friendly candidates on. We're just, we just want a more diverse, uh, we just want a more diverse board. And that, that's their, their tactic is weaponize diversity and equity rhetoric uh, for a policy that does the very opposite. So it's pretty, pretty evil on their part. Um, but yeah, they were unsuccessful, luckily. Though I have a feeling they'll probably come around, come back next, next year too. So you've been very generous with your time. And so final question in closing, where do you see opportunity and hope in 2021 and beyond? That's a, that's a great question. So um i won't even waste my time with the national stuff though i wish the best of luck to michaela wilkes um challenging steny hoyer in district five and uh mayor colin bird challenging um senator chris van holland but really what i think needs to be the main focus of progressives um at least in maryland is on your local state delegate and state senate races um maybe trying to find people to uh primary if you don't have such a progressive representative um that personally i don't think there's going to be a great gubernatorial candidate in maryland that i'm going to like find worth you know investing my time into um but you know back to the piece i said early uh you know howard county 
our county council members and our county executive is up for re-election in 2022. I think all politics is local and like people, you know, we still have a year and a half or so until those elections. So like if you're not very familiar with your, your state and local like county politics, get familiar with it. Um, try to get involved with the progressive organization that you can organize with um, and start gearing up for these elections. Um, and at the very least, uh, you know, another, another, another good thing, if, if elections aren't your thing, 2021 session right around the corner. Um, you said earlier, Evan, we have uh, one of the bluest states in the country. And yes, on paper, that is the case. But if you were just to read a list of the policies that we get every year, you probably wouldn't guess that because it's really not that progressive. But like, um, you know, we need to start building this momentum for the priority 2021 issues now. I think it's uh, a complete embarrassment that um, it's this long and Maryland still drags its feet on legalizing marijuana. Um, so I think that's a big priority for, for the next year, hopefully. Um, and yeah, just, you know, just start to do that education now so that you're not doing it at the last second in 2022 or 2021. Yeah. And I always like saying for people who are feeling despair, uh, get involved, get active. You start feeling better about yourself. You start meeting likewise people and that can start providing you with some hope and some optimism because pessimism and cynicism, you can't get into the ring knowing you're going to lose and, and expect to, to fight. You know, you, you, to even get in the ring to fight, you have to have some sense of hope and optimism that you can change things and make things better. And if you're feeling isolated and alone, you need to, there, there's plenty of people around who are, are struggling and, and work with different groups because there's, there's plenty of them. And so how can people follow your work? Yeah, so you can follow me um, personally on Twitter at Jake underscore Burdett. Um, I'm pretty active there. And on Facebook, uh, you search me up Jake Burdett, you'll find it. Um, but the thing that I'm really, you know, my, my, my project that I'm most passionate about is this new Democratic Club that we just launched since, you know, we decided not to run for re-election in Columbia Democratic Club just because we wanted something that was more explicitly progressive and comfortable with making criticisms of elected Democrats. So the new club we have, it's called Howard County Progressive Dem or no, 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 I'm sorry. I'm messing it up. Still a new group. It's called Progressive Democrats of Howard County, PDHC, Progressive Democrats of Howard County. Look them up um, on Twitter. We do have a Twitter account. Um, again, this is brand new, so we haven't been very active, but we are about to be uh, at Progress Hoco on Twitter. Um, you can look us up on Facebook as well and check out our website, hocoprogressives.com. Um, you should be able to sign up on our email list there. Um, but yeah, we're, we're really about to get, uh, get moving with this public education on the development issues, um, taking action towards removing police from schools. Um, and then uh, we we're also like have a, a committee specializing in like international relations and educating Americans on like a lot of the bad stuff we do overseas, like propping up, um, you know, some of the stuff going on in Israel against Palestinians right now. So be on the lookout for all that. Again, that's hocoprogressives.com. And yeah, I think that's about it. Jake Burdett, thank you so much for your time and all the work that you're doing. Appreciate that, Evan.